Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will come to us from across our northern border. We'll be airing on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, and her name is Dr. Margaret Cottle, a palliative care physician from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I'm really excited to talk to her because especially on this this topic of palliative care, especially in, you know, the aberrations thereof with Canada leading the way on euthanasia. Uh, sadly, it's something I wouldn't want to be leading the way on. But uh, Andrew has dug up some good information on a bill that's in Parliament in Canada now called C-7. Yeah, the C-7 bill is, is going on kind of as we speak, and it is an, a vast expansion of the euthanasia laws in Canada. Basically, about four years ago, euthanasia was made legal in Canada. It's one of the few places in the world where the doctor is allowed to kill their patients with a lethal injection or or pills or other means, Um, whereas many places, the physician-assisted suicide is the only thing legal. It used to have some safeguards that were struck down by the Canadian Supreme Court in the fall of 2019. And the Supreme Court gave a six-month deadline for the Parliament to come up with new legislation that would correct a few things that it, it saw problematic. And it's interesting to me that on the, the top of the bill it says, an act to amend the criminal code, and then in parentheses, medical assistance in dying. So they're admitting that this has been uh, a criminal act to help someone to die. It's pretty crazy. I mean, it's really, it's a carve-out in laws against murder. And it's a, a safe harbor for, for doctors to kill their patients. Safe harbor seems like an oxymoron there, Andrew. Yeah, you know, it's, it is kind of crazy. The, the thing that's being debated right now is this idea of death being reasonably foreseeable or in, in the imminent future. Which is a very specific and easy to measure, right? Well, <laughs> you know, it's tough because we can never predict anything, but no. that was one of the safeguards that was written into the original euthanasia law in Canada that death had to be somewhat imminent or foreseeable. The person had to have a terminal condition. That has been deemed unconstitutional and too restrictive by the Canadian Supreme Court. Death shouldn't have to be foreseeable. They should be able to die even if death is not foreseeable in the near future. According to the courts in Canada, not according to your hosts here on Dr. Doc. Cor- correct. That, that was the one main thing that's changing. There's a few other things. The, the other main things is the capacity to assent or consent to care. It, in all medical procedures, um, the good and the bad, patients have to consent to treatment. What this bill will do in Canada, if it passes as it stands, is that folks can have advanced directives that say, if I can ever not speak for myself, whether it's dementia or illness or anything, uh, then I would like you to euthanize me immediately. And so this is a huge step you know, in the wrong direction, where now a patient doesn't even need to be able to ask for themselves. They can do it based on an a priori advanced directives or... Even, you know, the, the other part of this is surrogates saying this is what they would have wanted. That's the slippery slope becoming like wet ice, incredibly slippery. Now, something else Andrew found online is that <clears throat> he was looking for information on poll results on what Canadians think about assisted suicide and euthanasia. And That's what right. did you find that is pretty startling? Yeah, you know, the, the Canadian government wants to get everybody's opinion. So they put out a big poll that was... Uh, overwhelmed. The servers were overwhelmed, and so they're still digesting that data. But when you're looking for the poll and the poll results, the first thing that pops up regarding this is actually a, a kind of a, a helper as to how to fill out the poll from Death with Dignity Canada, which <laughs> is the the new name for the Hemlock Society. So in looking for this poll, there's this handy little guide that shows you screenshots of all the questions and it says when they ask you this what they're really asking is this and this is how you should answer it and it goes through multiple questions in there so it's very much a leading propaganda piece but that's the first thing that comes up yeah it's completely rigged so that people will answer it the way that the pro-euthanasia people want you to by, by no mean is this a neutral type of poll well and that's that's the thing that's really kind of 
I don't know. I, I mean, to me, it's counterintuitive that we're doing a, an opinion poll on something that is so grave and dangerous. And it's one that clearly the Death with Dignity people are putting a lot of money in to try and sway the results of even that poll online. You know, there have been two recent articles on the <coughs> Catholic News Agency website, which is run by EWTN. Uh, one of the articles, which uh, was on their website February 28th of 2020, right out of Vancouver, so uh, right in the area where our guest lives, uh, just on the southern edge of Vancouver, just on the border with the United States, is a little place called Delta, British Columbia. And they are slated to lose $1.5 million at the Irene Thomas Hospice there. And as of February 25th of 2021, they'll no longer be able to operate as a hospice. And why will they not be able to operate as a hospice? Because, as the British Columbia Health Minister Adrian Dix said, quote, we have made every effort to support the board of Irene Thomas Hospice to come into compliance and they have been clear that they have no intention to. Yeah, come into compliance sounds like a good thing. Right. They're but, really talking about euthanasia. Yeah, they want to comply with killing their patients. And so they're making it sound like the hospice people are the bad guys, but they're really the good guys because they raised $9 million from local citizens to build this hospice so that they would only offer uh, true death with dignity, natural death supported uh, with dignity for all human life until the end of natural life. And now the government is going to take this building away from them, which they built for a, so, a, a purpose that's contrary to what the government now wants. It, it definitely seems that it's a little heavy-handed because they, they even, the hospice itself said, okay, we can reduce the amount of funding to comply with the law. It has to be a certain percentage. Right. They and are they, not allowed to um, operate with more than 50% funding from the government unless they follow the government rules. And, and they said they would go under 50%. But the government's not willing to... They're not willing to do that. This is definitely something where, you know, it's, I think it's a prick to everybody's conscience when people object to this behavior. Yes. And it's a prick to the government, the idea that people might object. And while there's this guise of protection uh, in Canada that basically says, if you are against it, you don't have to administer the euthanasia procedure or the drugs. However, you do have to refer. So, you know, thinking about even Thomistic you know, philosophy, the definition of an act and what we're culpable for, that's not really giving you much cover at all. You know, whether you refer for someone to go through this procedure or you're actually doing it yourself. And what's even worse, they can't even claim that they're restricting access for these patients who want to die because a mile away from the Irene Thomas Hospice is another place where Canadians can get medical aid in dying, so-called. And that's, that's really one of the biggest kind of concerns, not only for the patients, but for health professionals, that people who got into this business to try and take care of folks and provide quality, charitable care from a Christian perspective, they are really getting forced out of this. Absolutely. The second article, which was uh, on March 2nd of 2020 on uh, Catholic News Agency, featured Cardinal Collins of um, Toronto, Canada. Uh, where he has two key phrases talking about this Bill C-7. He says, we need to foster a culture of care, and we should be provided assisting assisted living, not assisted death. I really liked his, uh, I think it was an op-ed that he wrote there. He had a couple zingers about even, even this bill supposed to take get rid of the waiting period, right? Yes. And he's like, I've got a waiting period for a condominium, for a gym membership, but for euthanasia, no waiting period. It, it makes know? absolutely no sense. Uh, and he pointed out that the vast majority of patients who want medical assistance in dying do not want to do it themselves. That is assisted suicide. They want the doctor to kill them. Yeah. Isn't that so sad? I... Yeah, I, I'm almost speechless there. And, um, and this bill, as you said earlier, is in response to uh, something the Quebec Superior Court decided in September of 2019. Uh, there was supposed to be a thorough review of Bill C-7, uh, and it never happened. And in fact, this Quebec Supreme Court says that, as you did, that reasonably foreseeable death should not be a requirement for euthanasia. So it, basically anybody, although I saw in the uh, verbiage that you uh, brought here and showed me, it says that uh, a mental illness alone 
is not supposed to be a reason. Yeah, the initial law suggested that if someone was mentally ill, they were disqualified. And that was found to be unconstitutional in their mind. Um, however, now they're trying to change the word to people who who their only problem is mental illness. So if Are they not have, allowed to. Correct. If they, if they have mental illness and high blood pressure or diabetes or something, maybe they'd be a great candidate, you know. One of the most heinous things, I think, in here is that everybody in Canada has access to government-paid medical assistance in dying. Only about 30% of Canadians have access to palliative care. Well, and what does that say about priorities? Or, or the value of human life. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, especially when these things are measured in dollars and cents when it's all completely paid for by the government, what's going to be more economical for them to pay for one euthanasia episode or, you know, real true Christian care and charity? And to me, uh, something that's a disconnect here is that we're in the middle of the coronavirus uh, fear. And coronavirus is mainly uh, a fearful thing because of it, what it does to older people with multiple medical problems. So here we are on one hand going, pulling out all the stops to protect those very people that Bill C-7 wants to see get to die easier. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's you, you can get a sense that we're talking out of both sides of our mouth when we're at one point closing schools, canceling masses and concerts and everything. But at the other time, the other side, if they want to die, you know, no problem. Well, let's go on to our medical trivia question of the day before we hit our first break here. And this one involves a woman named Dame Cicely Saunders. She was a British nurse and then physician, and she's credited with developing the concept of total pain that includes psychological and spiritual pain in addition to physical discomfort. Although present in Catholic tradition dating back to the 11th century, she is credited as the modern founder of what patient-oriented movement? What patient-oriented movement did Dame Cicely Saunders start and popularize? You'll have to wait till the end of the show for the answer, but after this break on Dr. Doctor, we'll be back with Dr. Margaret Cottle. And we're back with our special guest today, Dr. Margaret Cottle, a palliative care physician in the greater Vancouver, British Columbia area, working in home hospice programs. She's a clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia in the Faculty of Medicine. She speaks internationally about end-of-life issues and palliative care. She's also addressed members of the Canadian Parliament in 2006 and 2017. She has served for many years on the board of Euthanasia Prevention Coalition of Canada and continues to serve on the board of the Christian Advocacy Society of Greater Vancouver. She and her ophthalmologist husband sponsor the University of British Columbia student chapter of the Christian Medical and Dental Association of Canada, and they host students weekly in their home for dinner and discussions, which is an awesome uh, apostolic work. She has uh, a black laboratory retriever named Kara, who often accompanies Dr. Cottle with her on her home hospice visits, has two grown children, four grandchildren. Margaret, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Thanks for inviting me. Well, here, Margaret, south of your Canadian border, you Canadian people have a longstanding reputation for being nice. But you know what? Nice people don't kill other people just because they're suffering. What in the world is going on in Canada that, that there's so much seeming support for killing the suffering? Well, I suppose it actually does have to do with being nice, wow. in, in quotation marks. Yes. In that the way that it's been framed, it's been framed around autonomy. And so that if, if you're a nice person, you don't tell somebody else what to do or uh. what not to do. And that's the way that this has been framed. It's been framed that, that if you want to die and you are having what our Supreme Court ruled as intolerable suffering and you have an irre irremediable condition with intolerable suffering, then you are supposed to be allowed to have that happen. So when, when this comes up, it's more about, well, why are you getting in the way of somebody who wants to have this thing that the courts sure. have said? So, Margaret, in dealing with medical students, in dealing with <laughs> patients, what is the best comeback you have to this so-called primacy of autonomy? Well, I think, first of all, autonomy really isn't, the whole issue with this. 
the issue is less about autonomy than it is about what does it really mean to be a human being. And as my colleague, Dr. John Patrick, would say, what do you have to believe in order to think that it's a societal good to kill someone, even if that person wants to die? And I think it, there comes a point where you have to believe that there are some lives that are not worth living. Mm. And otherwise, you would prevent the suicide, as we do in uh, patients who are suicidal from psychiatric only reasons. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so, suicide hotlines. That's, that's exactly right. But the really chilling thing about the, uh, the court decision here in Canada and the subsequent rollout of the legislation is that we are now seeing a real push for euthanasia to be permissible for only psychiatric reasons. Wow. And also by advanced directive, so that you don't even have to be competent when someone uh, takes your life. So at the moment, the uh, courts, the, the legislation says that your death has to be reasonably foreseeable, which has been very, very elastic, because for all of us, really, our deaths are reasonably <laughs> foreseeable. <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen. When would it not be foreseeable, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, that's the point. In fact, we know of a specific case where the wife of a gentleman phoned a physician friend of mine and said, I think the euthanasia doctor here in Vancouver is going to kill my husband. Would you go and see him? So my colleague went to see this gentleman. He was someone who had multiple sclerosis. He had refused a lot of the newer treatments. He was in a care facility that was not particularly good. And he had, uh, in fact, seen the euthanasia doctor, the most famous one here in Vancouver. And she had said to him, you're mostly lying in bed. You could potentially get bed sores. You don't have any now. Uh, which could potentially become infected. And if you chose not to have them treated, they that could end your life. So your death is reasonably foreseeable. Oh and she did, wow. in fact, perform the euthanasia on this man oh. as his wife had, had uh, suspected that would happen. So you're right. Uh, these, these things are, it, it's almost, if it weren't so sad, it would almost be funny because how can you, how can you say that? And they, so on top of this thing about being reasonably foreseeable, which the courts struck down in September and the government decided not to appeal, and the reason they did, the reason the court struck it down was because the original Supreme Court decision, all it said was that you had to have a grievous and irremediable condition or disability that was, uh, was causing you... Uh, suffering that was not tolerable to you and that was not amenable to a treatment that was acceptable to you. So, so even if it was treatable, it it's just acceptable yeah, to even you. Even if it's treatable. Yeah. If you, if you had diabetes and you decided that you never wanted to take insulin or any of the other things, that's a grievous and irremediable condition. It's causing you intolerable suffering. Then you would qualify because without the treatment, you your life would be would be shortened. So, and now with the new things that are coming in, uh, they have the the new bill that's coming in. They've decided that the the uh, ten to fifteen day reflection period is too long. You should be able to get euthanasia on the day that you request it, and that they're looking at uh, bringing it in for uh, mature minors, for children. Mature, for isn't that an oxymoron? Who, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, um, yes, no kidding, especially. Who gets to you, decide that one? <laughs> the minor, yeah. of course. Well, yeah. exactly. Uh, and also by advanced directive and for psychiatric reasons only. Now, the new bill that's coming in doesn't go quite that far, but it's really just a bit of a shell game because... When the original legislation was brought in in 2016, following the court case in, um, well, the Supreme Court case was in 2015, when the original legislation was brought in, they sort of kicked it down the road for the mature minors by advanced directive and for psychiatric reasons only. But those things were set to be reviewed, as they call it, and uh, addressed again by Parliament 
And when I spoke to my own member of parliament, she said it was I was the only person in her riding, which is her district, who had come in saying that we needed to have more restrictive guidelines. Everybody else was saying, open it up. If I ever get dementia, I want my family to be able to end my life. I don't want to be like that. Wow. You know, Margaret, I had a question just kind of related to the the temperature of patient discussions up there. I mean, down down in America here, we have a physician-assisted suicide in several states, but for most people, it's still kind of a taboo-feeling subject. It's not something that's talked about openly or with pride in many places. Is it the same way with euthanasia up there? Is that something that's being more embraced by your average patient? Very good question. Mm -hmm. There is a big difference between assisted suicide and euthanasia. And here in Canada, the, the proponents of this have managed to get it termed made medical assistance yes. in dying, which has made those of us who've done palliative care for decades crazy, to be honest, <laughs> yes. because we, as, as Dr. Balfour Mount, who was the person who coined the term palliative care and founded palliative care here in Canada, he said for 40 or 50 years, he's been helping people and aiding and assisting them with their dying, and he's never killed anyone. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's very much driven into the culture that that's what it's being called. And this is important because, in fact, we had a uh, an application in for getting a seminar that talked about the some of the effects of euthanasia, and the the people who were going to give continuing medical education credit for the seminar would not give credit for it if it was called euthanasia. It had to be called made because that's what it is wow. in Canada. And the, the very interesting fact is if you look at jurisdictions where some sort of hastened death is, is legal, in places where it's only assisted suicide, Washington, Oregon, some of the other U.S. states, but Washington and Oregon have had it longest, the, the rates go up, but they stay at about 0.2 to 0.3% of the deaths in those jurisdictions. However, in places where euthanasia is the main reason, so just for your listeners, one of the simple ways of talking about it is euthanasia is pushing the syringe and assisted suicide is prescribing the pills. Yep. So you could have an assisted suicide where even if someone were quite disabled, he or she would have to blink his or her eyes in order to start the machine going or something so that there is an agency of the person who is dying yes. who has to take that person has to take some action whereas the euthanasia especially in the Netherlands in Belgium in Canada it's it's seen as a medical act it's seen as it's very sanitized you don't do it it's just another treatment that you're having and because of that it has really become normalized here in Canada. In fact, we had one of our major newspapers uh, had a columnist named Andrew Coyne who recently had an editorial piece in which he said, the slope has indeed been every bit as slippery as the critics said it would be. He said, we haven't only legalized euthanasia in Canada, we have normalized it. And is he pro-euthanasia? Uh, I don't know where he stands on it, to be honest, but I do know that there are some people who have felt that, you know, in the very serious end-of-life situations that maybe it would be okay uh, just in these, you know, tough situations who are now uh, realizing that they've opened Pandora's box. Now, you said there was 02 to 0.3% um, death rate from assisted suicide. What happens when euthanasia be enters the picture? What's the percentage? Well, in Canada, we have already, after just over three years of it being legal, we have, we're up to 2%, so it's 10 times in three years. And the 0 0.2 to 0 0.3 is 20 years down the road from where it was in uh, in in Oregon. So it, it moves very quickly, and it moves from, even within the medical community, there were many physicians who were kind of horrified to think that doctors would 
take the lives of their patients. In fact, I was on a task force with uh, one of the physician groups, and I said out loud at a meeting, I, I said, I'm not sure that there are very many doctors who are going to uh, be lining up to kill their patients. And one of the other people said, whoa, now be careful with the inflammatory language there. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And I said, well, okay, I want to play nice in the sandbox here. What should I be saying? Well, you could say take the life of their patients. So well, what percentage kind of, of, pati- of physicians in Canada are willing to take the life of their patient? I'm not really sure where that stands. There are enough who are kind of evangelistic about it who are, are willing to do it. There are a few who are just a little bit on the, I don't know how to say it nicely, but who are, who are just very in favor of it uh, and who have pushed. But there are others who kind of have gotten into it a little bit unwillingly, but thinking, well, you know, this is what the person wants, et cetera. And uh, the, the press here, we have a very liberal press with no alternative press, and it's all been shown as something lovely and wonderful yeah. and calm and all of this sort of thing. So I'm not sure <clears throat> what percentage uh, do go along with it, but there's a, a group here in Canada called the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers, CAMAP. And they got themselves organized and started doing things like putting out guidelines for how to do this and what the, what the, what the professional guidelines should be and what the qualifications should be. And now they're pushing something that is called the duty to inform. So they're pushing that physicians or nurse practitioners who have a patient who has a serious illness should have a duty to inform that patient that they have the quote-unquote right to a euthanasia death. Wow. So I mean, it's the- gone way beyond this situation where you've got someone, the, the original case was around a woman named uh, Gloria Taylor who, the, Mrs. Carter who had already, the, the decision is named after her, but she had already died and it was her family who had brought it forward. But uh, Gloria Taylor was a woman with ALS and she said, if I want to die when I'm no longer able to kill myself, I should be able to have somebody do that for me. And the Supreme Court justices actually used her right to life as one of the arguments that she should be allowed to have someone kill her. And what they said was, I'm not making this up, they said, okay, Ms. Taylor wants to live to point B when she's no longer able to do the deed of taking her own life. But if she's to take her own, if she has to take her own life at point A before that, so that she knows that she will actually be able to do it, the time that's elapsed between point A and point B is lost to her. So she has lost the right to that section of her life. So as part of her right to life, we are giving her the right to have someone kill her. Man. That is so convoluted. That's Rube Goldberg logic. <laughs> uh, or illogic. It it, it, in other words, it's, it's justification to get what they yes. want. That, they Margaret, just yeah. determine the end. Do you game. feel like the, the physicians in the healthcare community have moved as quickly as the general public in Canada to accept this practice? Is everybody on board now, or are there a lot of folks still dragging their feet? Thank goodness. It's an interesting question. I think that physicians understand the complexity of, most physicians do, understand the complexity of what's involved when somebody says, I wish I were dead. And they feel a little bit funny about just saying, okay, we'll call the maid team, you know, we can make that happen, because they understand that these things change from day to day and there are other reasons behind it. But to be honest, physicians who have big moral and ethical objections to this are being bullied about this. They're being told that they're standing in the way of people who are wanting to have this as a right. And it's kind of interesting, when this came in, 
the way the Supreme Court talked about it in their ruling, all they said was that it shouldn't be that if the person wanted it and the person was competent, it you should be able to get it if you could find somebody who would do it for you. But immediately it was enshrined in law as part of the Canada Health Act, which meant that people had a right to this and it had to be funded. Interestingly, palliative care is no such right. And right. we have studies that show that only 30% of Canadians have access to any palliative care, and only 15% have access to specialized palliative care. So the idea that somehow, okay, you want to, you, you think your life is over, you think your life isn't worth living, you've got a right to have that happen right away, uh, no waiting, and as you know, probably the, one of the big hallmarks of our system is that people sometimes have to wait. My, my husband is an ophthalmologist, and people are waiting now on his waiting list one year to get their first cataract done. But Margaret, we need to take you. a break right now and okay. come back with more of this incredible conversation here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with the third segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor with uh, Margaret Cottle from British Columbia uh, talking about euthanasia in Canada. Margaret, what is the evidence that ending a patient's life by euthanasia actually renders them pain-free? Well, of course, there's no evidence to show that. I have often said we have no double-blind controlled studies that show that you're better off dead. But this gets me into a lot of trouble with media and people who are telling me that I'm forcing my religion down other people's throats because they believe, these other people believe, that you die and then there's nothing. Uh, but I, I don't know how we could ever say that the person is better off dead because we don't know. And to be honest, in medical legal terms, the, the responsibility is on the people who are bringing in a new treatment or a new procedure to show that it is not harmful. It's not the responsibility of the people who don't want it to say that it is harmful. So right. it goes against all kinds of, of medical norms that we've had for generations to say that, oh, well, this is, this is what's happening. And it's just, it, it simply is not the case that we know. We, we have no way of knowing. I mean, I think it's something like 17 years or something to bring a new drug to market with all the different studies proving on animals and then, you know, all these different things that it doesn't cause harm. Above all, do no harm. But this, you know, is kind of done by fiat, and uh, there's, there's no science to it, right? Well, that's true. It, it is a very philosophical thing that is being brought in. And the very interesting thing is that people who are doing this, many of them feel that they are Hippocratic physicians because they see this as a good. They, they see it as a societal good that if someone believes his life or her life is not worth living, then to end that suffering as they see it is, is a societal good. Uh, we are rather fond of saying that we put the person out of our suffering yes. instead of putting them out of their suffering. And I think that is the one of the really big questions that a colleague of mine asked years ago when we were still debating this. He said, is the reason that we have such a push for euthanasia and assisted suicide here in Canada, is it because we have not trained our healthcare learners how to really be radically present with people who are suffering in ways that are safe for the patient and the learner? I think that's a really important question. We're not teaching, we're not modeling the importance of being radically present with, with each other. And That's for the, listeners the to the show, we've had we two episodes do. on compassion in medicine, the science of compassionate care, because there are people now working on that. Margaret, I'd like you to address love and its relationship to euthanasia, because you made a comment earlier that patients will say, I just want it to be all over, or I'd be better off dead. Isn't that often a plea for love? It's, it's a plea for having us acknowledge that their life is worth living. Uh -huh. And also, it may be a plea for us to control their symptoms, for heaven's sake. 
if if you're having uh, terrible symptoms, then you may feel like you just want it to be over. But the interesting thing is that in the statistics with euthanasia and assisted suicide, the most common reasons have nothing to do with pain or other symptoms. They have to do with the loss of autonomy. They have to do with the fact that they can't do the things that they used to do. They have to do with the fact that they're concerned about being a burden on people around them. And it's it's so important that this idea of dignity, people say, oh, I want to die with dignity. Well, you as a child of God are made in the image of God, and you have inherent dignity. And if you are not feeling dignified, that's our problem. That's the problem of everyone around you and your society, everyone who loves you, to show that you don't have to do anything to be worthy of life. You don't have to do anything to be worthy of love. Uh, I, I really like the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 12 where uh, Paul says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way is the way of love. Uh, one of my colleagues once said that rights are an admission that love has failed. Ooh. When when yeah. you say, uh, I have the right to this or the right to that, that means love has failed. If each of us was doing what we're supposed to do from Philippians 2 about loving each other the way Christ loved us, then we wouldn't need to have rights because I would be concerned about your rights and you would be concerned about my rights. And, well, that's utopia, and it's not going to happen here on Earth. So we do need rights. Like Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, except, except for, for all the others. Yes. And, and so we do need to have rights. But I think those of us in the West tend to celebrate these rights and think that we're so wonderful because we have these rights, whereas we should actually be mourning that we need them, that rights are an admission that love has failed. And the most deeply human thing that we can do for one another is to come alongside each other when things are not going well. So give us an example of patients you have treated who have felt this way and things that you have found are helpful to them that you can do. I think the most important thing is just to be with the person and to say to that person, you matter to me. Uh, Cicely Saunders, who is the uh, the late Cicely Saunders doctor and uh, dame of the British Empire who started the modern hospice movement. She said, you matter just because you are you, and you matter to the very last moment of your life, and we will help you not only to die comfortably, but to live until you die. And that is the message that we need to put across. I think one of the things that's, that's really important is to try to dig deep into why, the, why is the person saying this? You know, I hear you saying that you want your death to come more quickly. Why is that? Is there something, is there a way we can help to reframe hope? Is there something that you still want to accomplish in your life? Are there some things you still want to say to people? Um, are there ways that we could care for you uh, in, in all of the different domains that would make it so that you would understand that we, we love you and we want you to be here and we care about you. I think those are the, the, the ways. We've, I've had lots of patients where uh, even just doing things like contacting a, a child who's been estranged from the person and getting that person to uh, the child to come and visit with the mother or the father, uh, even just taking my dog in to uh, to visit with people has been uh, has been important. Uh, actually, listening to people when they say, "I wish I were dead," and not just saying, "Okay, we'll call the maid team," uh, is 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 very is very rich and important. Uh, it's, one it of the sounds... things I think that uh, one of the things I think that that we can do that you were asking about how how it's changed the conversation with the doctor-patient relationship. Yes. And I think patients are more afraid now to talk about their fears and to say, gosh, I just wish I were dead, because they're afraid we're going to take them at their word. Instead of in the past, you could say, oh, I really wish I were dead, and we'd come alongside you and say, well, you know, how can we help you find joy? Why do you, why do you feel that way? What's the worst part about this? If you had a magic wand, how could we make this change? You know, all of those things where, where we, we got... Um, excited about how to, how to help you get out of that pit rather than just put the lid on it. 
Well, I I would say, Margaret, that sounds like the radical commitment to solidarity with those who suffer, true compassion. And I'm I'm kind of wondering to myself, when you have a patient that comes to you in the depths of depression and they express the desire for suicide that would be rejected by many physicians, um, as opposed to someone who is asking for euthanasia, how do people in favor of this um, tease those two apart? It would seem like it's easy if you, if you love the person that, that you wouldn't want to kill them. It's easy because we don't have to figure that out. But how, how would everybody else figure out if, if this is someone I should encourage to kill themselves or someone I should not? I think it's a very excellent question. And one of the things that's quite interesting is that in Quebec, the Minister of Health, right after this became legal, the Minister of Health had to issue a special notice to emergency rooms across the province of Quebec to say, when someone has come in with a suicide attempt, you are required to try to resuscitate this person. You don't have to have their consent to resuscitate them. And because people were getting confused, the people who worked in the emergency rooms were getting confused, well, maybe this person wanted to be dead. And I'm sure this, uh, the Minister of Health at the time, who was very pro-euthanasia, it probably really rankled that he had to send out this, this notice because it was admitting that people were taking it a bit too far. But I think you're right. How do you know? And if it's all about the suffering that, that is intolerable to that individual, then how are you even allowed to say no? And something else that tells the lie to the uh, inconsistent thinking also deals with how Canadians view capital punishment. Tell us about that. Yes, we haven't had capital punishment here for decades. And the, the reason was that it was done away with is because there was a concern that there might be even one death that was uh, done by mistake. And so we haven't had any capital punishment. And also, we won't extradite anyone from Canada to a jurisdiction where capital punishment is, uh, is allowed, is practiced, unless there's a written guarantee that the person will not face capital punishment. And yet there is a lot of pressure on those who are not in, interested in being involved in euthanasia to become involved in euthanasia, even though as a country we understand that referring for capital punishment is the same as being involved. So there's, there are a lot of things that, that don't make sense. It seems I, hypocritical, I think, doesn't it, that, that Canada won't refer, so to speak, for capital punishment, but there's so much coercion regarding yeah. euthanasia even as, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, the Irene Thomas Hospice that's near where you live, what, yes. what is the reason that these places are being unjustly targeted, places that just want to offer traditional palliative care? Well, I think it's a place of real spiritual darkness. And one of the things that has come to me through all of this is a real sense of gratitude that the Holy Spirit has given me spiritual eyes to see what love really is, to see what truth really is, to, has given me colleagues who, who, who love the Lord and who see the image of God and the face of Christ in every patient. And the, the fact that I won't have to stand before the Lord someday when this very short life is over and realize in a blinding flash that everything I had worked for was against what He wanted that I'll be able to stand there and say, yes, you know, we had some setbacks and some issues, but I was on your team. <laughs> and I think that, that there are so many people who are blinded by, we know that this is not a fight against flesh and blood, but they're blinded by the principalities and powers to, to think that these things that are evil are good, and that one of the things that very subconsciously I think they don't want anybody left who is holding up a mirror to to show what the true gold of caring for each other is. All they want is this falsely glittering, uh, false autonomy. They don't they don't want to have this true gold of loving even when it's hard. And I feel very grateful that I'm I'm not in that camp, and I won't someday 
come up against the understanding that I, I did it all wrong. What's the best thing that you think grateful. people like us and our listeners who are concerned can do to try to stem the tide of this evil movement? Well, first of all, just on a practical note, never let euthanasia come to your to your state or your jurisdiction. If you if they are going to bring in things like that and it's going to happen, make sure it's only assisted suicide because it's much 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 easier to control than euthanasia <laughs> and it has a whole different feel to it. Wow. But I think the other thing is that we need to keep keep talking about how each person is worthy of life, is worthy of love, is, is worth caring for. And we need to put our, our money and our time where our mouth is. Uh, if there are older people in your, in your congregation or in your, in your community who have nobody around them, we are such a scattered population now, yes. uh, make sure that they have friendship and other people that can come alongside. Uh, make sure that people's physical needs and emotional needs are addressed. Make sure that our young people get taught about what the importance of the image of God in each person so that death doesn't seem to be uh, just this easy way out. And also to expose this lie of autonomy. I think uh, we were talking at the beginning about how nice it all is yes. and that this is just what this other person wants. But I've started doing a little uh, a little demonstration at places where I give a talk, where I get someone to stand up and and represent the patient, and then I get all these other people from the audience to stand up. Somebody representing the doctor and the nurse and the pharmacist and the the, the ward clerk and the funeral director and the clergy and the you know on and on down the list, the neighbors and the friends. And then I say, how autonomous does this look oh. to you? How autonomous does this look to you? All of these people are involved. have somehow been involved in the hastened death of this individual. And you, what you don't see is that all, each of these people represents a whole team of people and that there's another group of people behind them pushing them to be involved. So as much as we are upset by someone who goes out behind the barn and shoots himself or takes too many pills... Uh, and we say, oh, gosh, we should have seen it coming. How could we have prevented that, et cetera? We're at least not complicit in the ways that all these folks have been complicit in the death of this individual. And so when people say this little slogan of my life, my death, my choice, it's just really a lie because there, no one dies in a vacuum. Margaret, last question. What resources would you recommend for listeners who want to lo learn more or do more? I think I would um, look at, there, there are lots of places to look about training. The, the uh, Catholic bishops have some very good training to help people figure these things out. There are Stevens Ministry, uh, things that can be set up within churches. There are lots of different ways that you can get involved. Uh, some uh, hospices will will give some uh, volunteer training. You have to be a little bit careful and make sure about the, the, how the hospice is leaning in some of these areas. Sure. But I think there are many ways of doing it. There are also quite a few online um, resources. And I think that the, the Catholic Church has been amazing in leading the way and trying to help people uh, see the importance of these issues. But I would say the, the best thing you can do is to find people in your own, your own city, your own community who need to be loved, who need to know that their, their lives are worth living, and come alongside them, be radically present with them. Margaret, and that's perfect. Thank you so much for being okay. with us here on Dr. Doctor. God bless you in your work. Thank you very much for having me. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the medical trivia question. And if you were listening closely with no prompting from us, our guest, Margaret Cottle, gave you the answer to the question. And in fact, we learned offline that Margaret met Dame Cicely Saunders, a British nurse who then became a physician, credited with the concept of total pain that includes psychological and spiritual pain as well as physical discomfort. And she is the modern founder of what patient-oriented movement? 
the hospice movement. The hospice movement. And as uh, Dr. Cottle told us, uh, Dame Cicely Saunders wrote eloquently against the entire concept of euthanasia and uh, assisted suicide as being just completely contrary to human dignity. Yep, and her work was done at St. Christopher's Hospice in London, correct? Yes, which she uh, founded in 1967 as the world's first purposely built hospice. And in fact, she led to the specialty that Dr. Cottle is in now of palliative care. Before her, there was no such separate specialty. Uh, and, And she did it, Dame Cicely Saunders, because of individuals she met in her life who experienced what she referred to as pathologic grieving and wanted to help them out. Man, well, thank goodness we have good palliative care physicians there. And and here in the United States. You know, thank you very much for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We come to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio here on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We invite you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review us. It helps other people find us more easily. And please be sure to send us questions or tell us how you heard something on Dr. Doctor and how that changed your life. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing rheumatology. And Research Medicine with Dr. Bill Williams. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.